Bookworm Games, Episode 4, The Mighty Onet Police Force. Welcome back, one and all. Wesley Shantz here. And more so than usual, this one is going to be a companion piece with the previous episode, filling in some of the social framework in the background of the uh, peculiar individual characters that we looked at and their interactions with Ness and with you. Yes, you, the one holding the controller, the one playing the game. Um, but first, a little acknowledgement for today for my friend Ryan. And it's a fitting one for this is St. Patrick's Day weekend. I think it was Ryan who first showed me the virtues of the L button, how it's not at all negative, but efficient to embrace laziness sometimes, like his elegant and negligent sliced forehand that he used in ping pong. This past week, he sent me some great comments, which I've posted on the blog, which you can find links to there on the program webpage on Anchor. Um, I've got an excerpt to read from them. I'm really glad that you opened up your podcast with BuzzBuzz. Buzz. Every time I replay Earthbound, I gain a greater appreciation for BuzzBuzz, Buzz, what he has to say, and what he represents in the grander scheme of the game. I used to think that Pokey's foil is Ness, as maybe would be fitting, for they are peers of a sort. But after hearing your thoughts and chewing on things more, I think Buzz Buzz is Pokey's foil. They're introduced together, practically. Their characters stand so diametrically opposed to one another's. Where Pokey is shallow, banal, selfish, Buzz Buzz is wise, selfless, courageous. And I can't help but think that after Pokey's mom smacks Buzz Buzz and he's thrusting the soundstone upon you, that in that moment there isn't also somewhat of a choice. Which road will you walk? The Pokey road or the Buzz Buzz one? Now, since it is a game, you don't really have a choice after all, but maybe that's just another more meta message, that even in life, there isn't really a choice between the Pokey Road and the Buzz Buzz Road. And he says this, Giant Step always brings back to mind for me Neil Armstrong's quote from the moon landing. But to step a year back in time, I think it, the quote, and perhaps Giant Step, also echoes Bill Anders' famous Earthrise photo he took during Apollo 8. And... If you've never seen the documentary series, From the Earth to the Moon, I highly recommend it. It really gives you an appreciation for the men and women who made the whole space program a reality and their struggles and loss. But anyways, in the episode involving Apollo 8, Bill Anders gives an interview where he describes that prior to the photograph, no one had ever really seen the whole Earth all in one instant like that. How that was the start of something new, a new journey for humanity, one where more people had an appreciation that we are in this together and that we are really just tiny in the grand scheme of things. Anyways, to tie this back to Earthbound, Giant Step is really the beginning of a journey for Ness. But not just a journey for Ness, but really the whole world as it struggles against the forces of evil embodied by Gigas. We are all in it together, and Ness needs everyone at the end of things to pull through the final battle. So thanks, Ryan, again for those comments and the encouragement and listening in. Thanks to everyone listening. And uh, you can post those comments right there on the Bookworm Games blog or on the New School Notes blog, the main one that I've got the link to in the program there. Um, so as you might have noticed last week, I had a little bit of a rougher time reading through my notes. And uh, my goal is always to keep these episodes around half an hour uh, on average. So far, I've been doing an okay job on that, but it's been creeping up every week. So I want to try to get back into a, uh, a more limited time, time frame for you guys. Um, I did want to start here by talking about uh, 
where this podcast is really going. And part of what I'm doing by writing the scripts out is to have material for what I hope will be a book someday. But also, um, I'm, I'm drawn to the idea of making these um, more conversational and not simply a monologue. And so that brings me back again to this, uh, this model of Socratic dialogue that I've mentioned before. And that's a term that gets thrown around a lot, um, but I still think it's a really helpful one um, because it helps distinguish a kind of philosophical ideal, the community of learners pursuing truth, um, honestly, sincerely, um, perhaps, hopefully, in friendship and courage. Distinguishing that from the competing ideal of the guru, right, the sage, um, the one with all the answers. And it's, again, uh, primarily a distinction how one, uh, one, one stance towards, towards the truth. Um, now, in some sense, Socrates would like nothing more than to find just such a person, right? That's what he's always seeking, is someone who can give him answers. Um, but the point seems to be that he doesn't find such a person. Um, he does not find a guru um, whose, whose answers actually hold up to his questioning. Um, wherein he follows up the implications of their own thoughts and it unmasks anyone who had set themselves up as knowing everything. Uh, instead, he's able to distinguish some of them anyhow uh, as actually being sophists, right? Uh, essentially salesmen of rhetorical uh, skills, techniques, which uh, have the ring of truth, perhaps, uh, on a superficial way. But uh, in f looking closer, in uh, uncovering some of their presuppositions, it's it becomes clear uh, to the reader and perhaps to the person themselves that they really don't know what it is they're talking about. And I think I arrived at some moments like that in my lecture last time, and uh, and that's that's not a bad thing, right? Um, that shows me where I need to dig in a little bit more. And so to that end, I'm going to be having a good friend of mine on the show next week. I hope uh, to talk to me and and get some of this, help me think through some more of, more of the, what I'm doing here. Uh, so I'll say a bit more about that towards the end of the show here. Now, so in Earthbound, uh, as in most role-playing games, you're able to find out what to do next in a couple of different ways. Uh, you can do it through trial and error, just simply exploring and trying stuff out. Or you can do it by talking to people and actually listening to what they say and piecing it all together. And if you get stuck, in Earthbound at least, you can go ask the Hintman. Now, if the Hintman is a sophist, he's at least an unassuming one. Uh, his little hint stand that he has set up seems to intentionally call back to mind uh, Lucy's psychology stand in Peanuts. You'll find him set up behind it in each of the towns, and when you do find him, the location will be added to your town map, which you can access with the X button, you know, near the top. The map, which automatically updates to show whichever town you're currently in, as you see when you do make it to Tucson, uh, the map is another staple of RPGs that Earthbound thus puts its own flavor on, kind of like those condiment packets for sale in Berglund Park. And you're given the map in the library, the first building you come to on your way from Ness's house. Here you'll also find some helpful information about magic butterflies and our convenient society. And you'll find a funny old gentleman who wonders if the monster occupying Giant Step is stronger than his wife. And there's a man of few words who stands still, wearing a hockey mask. You'll just have to check back in with him later. The magic butterflies you'll soon find not only make you relax with a soothing lavender blink of the eyes, restoring some PP, but they might help you 
realize something you may find useful, which is the predictability of finding them again in a similar spot. And so there's sort of like a mini Your Sanctuary spot, an oasis of recovery tucked away here and there around the world. Now, having noticed this much, uh, you may see an important corollary, namely that enemies, too, appear not entirely randomly, but according to certain patterns in certain places. And then, by walking away and back again to test this hypothesis, you may discover that they either multiply or are actually wiped away by that scrolling of the screen. And so the world around you, as you perceive it, and simply noticing this and beginning to utilize it to either avoid or stack up battles and butterflies, as will be most advantageous to you, this discovery is right up there with realizing the power of the L button or of Psy Rockin' or whatever you named your favorite thing. In short, your perception shapes the reality, and the more adept your perception there at the very edge of what you can see, the more that you can notice about the world around you, the more patterns you can see, and the more adept you'll be in moving through it. So, although there's a library in town, there's no school. Not even a training room of the sort that you find in Final Fantasy games and other RPGs. Instead, the world itself is your classroom, and it teaches you what it behooves you to know. Now, uh, author that I love, Terry Pratchett, in his Tiffany Aching books, makes a similar point, and I'm not sure how directly he's doing it in a gentle, satirizing way of the J.K. Rowling phenomenon, which has celebrated boarding school magic in Hogwarts. Um, but anyhow, uh, there, there is a boarding school in far-off winters. Um, again, for your new friend who you've never met, his task is to leave it, and once out in the world, not to go back in, but to go meet up with you, the destined friends, who's he, who he has never met in your hour of greatest need, when you are imprisoned and buried alive. And But we'll get to say a little more about that in another month or two. Now, I just wanted to say a few things that I think are pretty straightforward about this topic of teaching and video games. Um, there's a few things that came to mind as I was thinking about this. There's... Uh, the way that games teach you to read, simply um, reading text quickly and assimilating it effectively. Um, they also teach you new words, and so I'll just go ahead and get my little digression on a word out of the way right up front here. Um, one word that you come across in this little section of Earthbound is when you're talking to Captain Strong in the police station, and he asks you, do you, you sure you want to go to Tucson? And then there's the sound effect of a chortle that's written out the word chortle, um, and then he says, follow me. So the word chortle actually comes from Lewis Carroll in his sequel to Alice in Wonderland, Through the Looking Glass, in the poem Jabberwocky, uh, which you might have studied at school or at some point, or at least come across. Um, it's a poem where he makes up lots of words, um, and chortle's one of them, but it's become so common in speech that um, most people might not realize that it actually was coined so uh, so recently. Um, anyhow, uh, reading, learning new words, it uh, teaches you how to talk about your experiences because you want to talk about the things that are going on in the game. Uh, I think that playing video games teaches you, insofar as it's possible, um, at least gives you practice with critical thinking and problem solving. It uh, 
helps you to seek out resources. It helps you to um, imaginatively fill in more of a story, right? Which is a technique of active reading that people like to talk about. Um, and really, when you have to go and buy items and compare statistics and things like that, then it teaches you a bit of math, too. Um, now, in Clyde Mandolin's work that I've mentioned before, uh, Legends of Localization, um, it also offers you a way into learning a new language, because if you play a game in a, in, a foreign, um, in a foreign language, and you already know sort of what's going on in the game, then it gives you a better chance to uh, see how the, the foreign language is used, based on comparing it with what you already know from the game. Uh, so he actually offers you a, um, a little Japanese handbook and uh, can help you to, to play through the game um, based on what you already know. And what more ex immersive uh, second language experience could you have than that, aside from actually going and living in another country? Now, um, the, uh, the interest in, um, in programming games of your own, of course, can also arise from this. And it seems to be something that can take you quite far, as it did for um, Toby Fox, the creator of uh, Undertale, we mentioned last time. So um, one other school that you do hear about, of course, is uh, the preschool. And we'll talk about that shortly. Um, but here, uh, to move on into um, one other point about hints and maps. Now, of course, you could find out just about anything these days online in a matter of minutes. Uh, but back when these games came out, it was all word of mouth. Um, maybe some kid at the pool ahead of you in the line for the water slide would hear you and your friend talking about Super Mario RPG, and he would casually turn and clue you in to finding the Sky Guy's fertilizer up in the sky. Oh, shy Guy, sorry. Um, or you could call, apparently Nintendo of America had a hotline Though I never used it, somehow it felt like giving up, almost like using the hint guy. Um, or in many cases, and this one I did often do, you could go and get a strategy guide. Um, some of which, like the one for Earthbound, are little works of art in their own right. The Earthbound Player's Guide, taking a cue from that scrapbook that's at the end of the game, uh, arranges information in the form of a travel guide. And it's got these little versions of the morning headlines, which you can hear about staying at the hotels in each town. And it's got a lot of other fun little bonuses, too. Here's an excerpt from the Onet Times. No one actually admitted to seeing aliens coming from the meteor. But with some of the strange happenings around here lately, it's certainly possible that extraterrestrial beings are at work. Some of them may even be people you talk to on the street today. Be sure to pass along a friendly Onetian welcome to the visitors no matter what they look like. Yeah. In, uh, in the most famous example, in the back of the book, there's these scratch-and-sniff cards, and uh, might have all been scratched away. But uh, they're tied in with the infamous ad campaign, which uh, the motto was, This Game Stinks, and that's sometimes cited as part of the reason for Earthbound's uh, relative lack of popularity in the United States. Um, so as much as I scratched those snaf scratch and sniff cards, I never did figure out that it was a, what it was supposed to be, the mystery one. Because if you did identify it, you mailed it in, then they would, uh, they would send you back the mock pizza air freshener. And man, am I jealous of all you people out there who've got a mock pizza air freshener. Alas, there was no strategy guide 
to the strategy guide. So, as we said, there's no school in town. And uh, perhaps this is part of an elaborate joke uh, that's triggered when you step out again after successfully defeating Titanic Ant and reclaiming the first melody at Giant Step. There's a cop waiting for you outside the cave. Um, and he demands, Hey you, the board says do not enter. Couldn't you read it? Hmm. It sounds like a rhetorical question, but you actually have to answer yes or no. And either way, your very presence on this side of the sign proves you've broken that most revered of Onet laws and trespassed beyond the limits of roadblocks and dared to explore Terra Incognita. Now, something that's pointed out on page 123 of Legends of Localization, the Earthbound edition, um, is something I would never have noticed otherwise, but it's really cool. Um, so, here's what it says. In both Mother 2, so the Japanese version, and Earthbound, the English translation, there's a sign outside a shack in Onet with DON'T ENTER, all caps, written on it in English. Even so, using the check command on the sign in Earthbound will produce a text box that says DO NOT ENTER instead. So, DON'T ENTER is what the sign actually says. When you read it, it tells you DO NOT ENTER. Okay. In Mother 2, players didn't get to enjoy this amusing inconsistency. It simply gives the Japanese equivalent of DON'T ENTER. So presumably with whatever contraction there is. Um, so, goes on. At one point, a police officer yells at Ness for not being able to read the sign. In Mother 2, it makes little sense. It's possible the Japanese player couldn't read Don't Enter in English and didn't think to check the sign beforehand. In Earthbound, though, English-speaking players have less of an excuse for not being able to read the sign. It's a nifty example of the audience itself changing the significance of a line of text. And then... In the picture, and there's a caption about it that caught my eye, um, it's noted that this is a rare treat to see a game mid-localization like this. These pre-release images are also great for playing Spot, the typos game. Okay, so games upon games here. What, what's pointed out in the, in the thumbnail there is that something you can see in the player's guide. Um, let's see, which page are we on? On page 24 of the player's guide for Earthbound. It says, uh, Policemen on guard, after you defeat the titanic ant, the enemies that attacked you on your way in will flee from you as you work your way to the exit. Once you reach the exit, though, you're, you'll be in big trouble. An officer will be waiting there for you, and he'll order you to go to the police station. And there you can see the text, very small, says, Hey you, the board says, do no enter. Couldn't you read it? So, I just... I love the, the levels there of thinking about what it means to be able to read, right? And to um, represent reading as a, uh, a kind of civic duty, right? Uh, kind of has a moral connotation there. Um, and of course, hilariously, the cop himself, the translators themselves made a mistake there in uh, coming down on Ness for not reading the sign. Um, another level of the irony here is that, of course, you probably do read all the signs if you're like me. You walk around town and read all the signs, um, including the one about treating the flowers nice, uh, which in order to read requires you to actually walk across some of the flowers, most likely. And then there's the one uh, somewhere else in Onet with a girl standing in front of it, so you can't actually read the sign. But when you try to, she'll say to you, there's someone going around and reading all the billboards, and after each one he says, check a Rooney. 
right? More of the irony then, uh, like we mentioned in the library, all that you get uh, is the town map. They don't actually have any books, at least not yet, not that you can check out. Um, so maybe, you know, between the library and the lack of a school, you haven't actually learned to read you Ness playing the game. Uh, and then we also hear about um, um, being, uh, so on this point of sort of not doing as you're told, uh, you've, you've already been told by uh, the mayor in the town hall uh, that as much as he appreciates you dealing with Frank and the sharks, he will not be held responsible for you actually using the key to the traveling entertainer's shack. Um, and in order to have him give it to you, you have to actually agree to this legalistic deception in order for him to hand it over. Um, so this goes along with another character there in the town hall who, if you talk to him, he says something about being angry at his boss. He's steamed, and he might take him a few hours to sign this piece of paper in front of him. All right, so put that together with the um, policeman hauling you in um, when you've just uh, defeated the sharks, right, simply for breaking the one law that they seem to care about, um, which is their, uh, their, their, their roadblocks. Um, I think that uh, between the uh, corruption of town hall and the uh, self-aggrandizing righteousness of the police force, I saw a parallel to that that film that was mentioned at the end of last episode. So Ikiru, I-K-I-R-U. It's the Japanese word for to live. All right? And it's a film by Akira Kurosawa, um, which in turn is, is based on the story by Tolstoy, Death of Ivan Ilyich. And so there's a play on the two stories right there in the name. So one is called To Live, Ikiru, the other, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. Um, and so Ikiru is one of these great classic films that you'll find by chance if you go in and browse in that section of your local library. And at least that's how I found it. And I watched it a while ago. I was trusting to serendipity to find it again to rewatch this past week to prepare for this little discussion. But um, someone else must have checked it out. I couldn't find it. Well, good for them. So anyway, briefly from my memory, filling it in with a few things that I read on a uh, little summary on the Best American Poetry website by Saul, by Louis Saul. Sorry. Um, the movie tells the story of a lifetime bureaucrat, Mr. Watanabe, who realizes that he is dying, and the movie's all about how he spends the time that remains. He goes out on the town, unable to bear to be at home with his grown son and daughter-in-law. He meets a writer who pledges himself as Watanabe's Mephistopheles, right, the devil that's summoned by Faust in the tale that's retold by Goethe and Christopher Marlowe, among others. But as we'll see, uh, this writer, he's really more of a sort of general carpe diem, sees the day kind of figure. Um, because Watanabe really seems to keep his soul intact. Or if he like, he even gets it back if he had sold it long ago to the specter of the bureaucracy, the town uh, machine for which he works. So his other main escapade um, is with a younger co-worker who comes to uh, kind of make up for the lost relationship with his son in a way. His relationship with her, of course, um, gives rise to all sorts of scandalous gossip. And there's a few recurring songs. And there's these brilliantly crafted shots, black and white, still lives, the play of light over a character's facial expression, the, the, the turn of their, their body, 
uh, over the texture of their clothes. These, also these little visual jokes. Um, like you see this label in the office, which says something about efficiency, and it's buried under a stack of old paperwork. I think it's 30 years worth or something. So where the story really diverges um, from the uh, Ivan Ilyich story um, is, is that the character, uh, he learns he's going to die, right? So they're so far the same. And by the way, that's a classic definition um, for philosophy, that it's learning how to die. But, but so here's the difference, I think, about this movie. It, it really makes the point that learning how to, to live uh, is included in that. It's everything up to the end. And, and it's beyond the end, indeed, because it's how one is remembered as well. So, after Watanabe's death, spoilers ahead, guys, we find out the truth, that he had worked behind the scenes to get through and around the bureaucracy that he'd given so much of his life to in order to get this playground built for these women that we saw in the very beginning of the movie. They're given this cruel runaround from desk after desk in a vicious circle of petitioning fruitlessly. Uh, but they don't give up, right? And he works with these poor people. And he stands up to the mafia, uh, the, po the politicians. Um, and so this classic film, black and white, a bit like Citizen Kane with, with the sled, you know, Rosebud, um, there's this iconic image of him, uh, Watanabe, at the end of the movie on the swing set that he helped to bring to the neighborhood, singing in the night. And it's this sort of, so I was thinking about this, this occurred to me, see what you think, a sort of reverse or, or flip side of nostalgia. Because this movie seems to be all about making up for, uh, in the time that remains, all that one might not have done, and all that one left unsaid and unaccomplished. It's this theme, again, of lost time, but it's recovered. And so much of it turns out to be whatever has to do with other people. At least that's the case when I think of what I can identify as my own sins of omission, that it's certainly not as in the case of nostalgia for, for books and video games and smells and melodies, all these kinds of things, but rather for, for times I might have spent, for the time that I might have spent with other people and experiences that we might have had. Um, and so whatever this thing is, I don't know quite what the word for it would be. I think it's at least as powerful as nostalgia. And since I do have the story Death of Ivan Ilyich here at hand, I wanted to read just a tiny bit from the end of that too, because I think a, you know, a similar kind of turn comes about at the end of the story. So this lifelong uh, legal, uh, I think he's a judge, uh, worker, he's, he's dying. Um, and here at the end, it says, he became attentive. Yes, there it is. Well then, let there be pain and death. Where is it? He sought his old habitual fear of death and could not find it. Where was it? What death? There was no more fear because there was no more death. Instead of death, there was light. So that's on page 91, and that's not quite the very end of the story, but it's in the uh, P. V. Volokonsky translation of Tolstoy's short story, The Death of Ivan Ilyich. So I'll try to 
briefly describe what I think is going on here um, in these settings. Of course, the, the modern day setting of, of Earthbound 1990X is one of the main things that distinguishes it from many other games uh, of this kind, which are generally in sort of fantasy or historical settings, perhaps science fiction ones. And, um, and there's elements of all of that in Earthbound 2, but it's a bit be below the surface, of course. Um, what we get here is a kind of rough outline of a society, um, but it leaves room for the imagination to fill in and to accept what there is without really needing exhaustive detail or verisimilitude. Um, for one thing, here's an interesting one. Uh, there's no bank, uh, though there's ATMs everywhere. And there seems to be no uh, causal relationship um, between defeating enemies or, you know, making them tame, making them turn back to normal, and then your dad making deposits into your, your bank account. Um, though clearly that's what's actually going on. Uh, in the framework of the story, instead, early, early on, you might notice Pokey's dad says something where he claims that Ness's dad has borrowed a tremendous sum of money from him. And apparently that's the money that you keep getting placed in your bank account as the story goes on. Um, this may or may not make any more sense than picking up gold or gill or coins from defeating random enemies. Um, but as we've said, right, the enemies in Earthbound are not entirely random, neither in where and how they appear on the, on the screen. Uh, they don't just sort of jump on you and you're into a battle screen, right? You can actually see them on the, on the map. And um, nor, nor are they completely random in the sense that there's a kind of explanation, right? There's this idea that Gigas this force is influencing the potential for evil that's already in their minds. Okay, so we get this rough outline of society. Um, we see that the government does provide some services, like you've got the roads, right, although they're frequently blocked. You've got lights, um, so electricity somewhere is generated, but there's no gas stations, and cars going by, but there's no gas stations, except in the opening screen, when you boot up the game, before you actually start playing, there's this kind of um, still, uh, and it looks a lot like the, the posters of UFO attacks on the walls of the arcade, or in that, that one character tells you about these Lovecraftian dreams he's been having of UFO attacks. So anyhow, we have the presence of this government. It's kind of comfortably in the background, right, until you start to scratch the surface and you start to talk to people in town hall, or you encounter the cops and all this. But uh, up till that point, by its very absence, and, and by being tacit, and by being that which goes without saying, you know, you have practically a kind of definition there of, of privilege, right? This tells you something about Ness and, uh, and the family that he comes from there in the suburbs, right? So anyway, I think it would be a stretch to read too much into all this, or uh, to say something like, you know, that you see the game making a statement about police brutality, right? I think clearly this is more of a send-up of the police as a kind of oppressive arm of government. And um, I think they're made very funny in their parallel to the sharks, right? They've got their crushing chops, they've got their trash talk, um, but then they have grudging admiration when Ness prevails. And they've got, you know, the, the fifth cop, he's kind of cowardly, he... Uh, ducks out. You don't actually have to fight him. And instead he leaves uh, his boss, Captain Strong, to try to deal with you. And Captain Strong, when you beat him, he claims that he has a special move that he's been holding back, right? He 
didn't use it. Um, and of course, here's an important detail. None of them draw their guns, right? American cops would have guns. Instead, you know, they're calling you into the station is not under any duress. Um, you're never threatened. You're never thrown in jail. Um, but if you were, uh, you could have gotten a glimpse of a bathroom because you narrowly missed your chance um, in the upstairs of the hospital, I think it is. Um, so anyhow, these cops, they've been testing you. They, they've been making sure that you're really ready to release into the wider world. It points out a kind of loss of perspective on their part, of course, right? They've brought you in, not the violent sharks and not the corrupt politicians, of course, because, again, you've broken the law they care most about enforcing, and they take it as a kind of personal challenge and uh, disrespect. So just to, let's see, wrap up a little bit of our whirlwind tour of your hometown, uh, it's interesting to notice how not everyone actually lets you into their houses, right? In most of these kinds of games, you walk freely in and out of houses. People don't seem to notice that that's strange in any way. But here, you know, some people are like, um, bring it to your attention. That's sort of an odd thing to do. Or they have little jokes, like you knock on the door and they answer without opening it. And uh, one of them will, will quiz you and ask for a song. And there's three X's in a row and then the ending of the word today. And your, your choices are yes or no. So there's another little Beatles reference that's stuck in there. Yeah. Uh, then there's there's a couple that seems to be canoodling or, or doing something kind of uh, strange up in one of the apartment buildings. If you knock on the door, you hear them, overhear them kind of whispering to each other and laughing. Um, but I, I don't want to get too much into all this stuff. I, I feel like sometimes it takes away from the game to just try to explain all these little jokes, of course. Um, Sorry, just looking over my sort of disorganized notes again. I, I, I did want to mention, of course, that we hear about the Fresh Breeze movement and their motto, um, don't break the wind of change, right? I, that's one i got to throw in there in the long and storied tradition of fart jokes going way back. Um, but uh, so in the library, you have these people studying perfectly trivial topics. There's evidently no books. The only useful thing they can give you is the map, which you can only use once you back out in the world. And as was mentioned in the previous episode, once you brought Frank and the sharks to their senses, there's nothing further for you to do in the arcade, except to muse on the strangeness of all the kids gathered in the dimness to play on their separate machines. Um, one step up, at least, from those kids of our generation living in their parents' bed. Ooh, that was a close one. In their parents' basements, playing games online together, though they're apart, since, after all, the ones in the arcade are only kids. They have no other responsibilities, and at least they're out of the house and socializing to some extent. You know, maybe we have sort of nostalgia for the dawn of video games from just such arcade settings, and, uh, and how far they've come, right? The games that tell stories and evoke something that's more than a simple kind of amusement or distraction. And uh, and evokes in the part of anyone watching people play kind of amusement. Um, I think of another interesting film um, where you see scenes of uh, what seem like kind of casino slot machines, but they're in these game halls. And you have uh, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson uh, traipsing through, um, past them, squeezing by, and lost in translation. 
which has got another variation on that theme of kind of recognizing the, the, the necessity of, of some kind of meaning for life in the face of suffering. It's captured on film, um, and film, of course, seems to be a medium that video games are perhaps the most similar to, though they partake of elements of drama and literature and music as well, things that we've talked about in the previous episodes. Um, then we talked a little bit about the senseless pettiness of the bureaucracy, the corruption of the mayor in town hall, it's hypocrisy, and uh, it's made us think about Ikiru, uh, of what incredible potential there is when people gather to do work, and then that becomes wasted sometime when that organization of individuals into this association is treated simply as um, well, something to forget or ignore or take for granted, right? And, and of course it goes astray, unless, or as much as, maybe the citizens come to petition for a fresh breeze, the wind of change. <laughs> um, maybe the extreme of this we see in the confrontation with the police, where a sufficient sense of self-respect may have led to the conflict in the first place, but also then leads to its peaceful resolution in the end. You have that spark of hope in seeing someone better than you, but then having sufficient honor to acknowledge that, as we saw before with Frank. So, between Captain, Fra <laughs> Captain Strong and Frank, have this idea of frankness and strength, elements of masculinity, which I think it'd be a good idea to recover, rather than throwing them out with whatever's toxic. So, if you've slept lately in the game, You've already been having some intimations and hearing the voice of the female friend who will accompany you the rest of the way once you find her. So, as mentioned though, we'll first be taking a break next week from Earthbound proper. We'll leave Captain Strong to play it, though he's having a tough time. Instead, we'll have a little conversation with my good buddy Ben Kozlowski, a bona fide philosopher, professor, writer, and sometime programmer. And he's someone I look up to, um, except, of course, when he's riding in the wheelbarrow that I'm pushing in the direction of an oncoming jouster. That's right. We're coming up next week, the reunion of Don Quixote and Sancho. We ride again. So it gives anyone playing through Earthbound with us a chance to catch up and uh, make some headway towards Paula. And it gives me a chance to get some of my presuppositions re-examined in what I hope will be a very helpful way. Until then, take care. <laughs>